Well, good morning, church. It is good to be with you. Today we'll look a little bit different for a sermon. You know, usually we, we look at a paragraph, maybe a couple paragraphs, maybe multiple paragraphs. Sometimes we've even looked at a couple sentences, and I will expound, <laughs> Lord willing, faithfully to what the text says to encourage you. This morning, we are doing kind of a recap of not just a chapter or a couple chapters, but a book and half of, or like a third of another book. <laughs> First Samuel. So uh, we're not going to be you know, having a scripture reading because that would probably take most of the time if we read all of First Samuel into Second Samuel 7. Uh, but we're going to be looking at a recap of, of where we've covered 2 Samuel, because next week we're getting into 2 Samuel 8, and I thought it'd be good to have a recap. Right? Last, last week, Stephanie and I saw the new Top Gun movie, Top Gun Maverick. Great movie. The, the aerial fighting, the, the camera work, it was the sound. I mean, if, you're, if you haven't yet seen it, I'd recommend seeing it in theaters. It's pretty sweet. And uh, the original came out 36 years ago, May 1986, if you can believe that. And ideally, Steph and I would have watched the original like the day before we went and saw the new one, so it was fresh on our mind. But we didn't have kids that weekend. We were feeling young and, young and dumb and spontaneous. So it was like 9.30, and Stephanie was like, hey, we should go see the new Top Gun movie, and they have a 10.30 showing. <laughs> I was like, we can stay up till 1 o'clock, right? So that's what we did. But before we went, we, we searched on YouTube Top Gun uh, summary videos, right? Or Top Gun to prepare you for... Uh, Maverick, and it, several videos came up, some really helpful videos. Stephanie, I watched one of them, and it was a really helpful summary of what happened in the movie, some of the, like the main highlights of the plot, main characters, the storyline, and whether it's Top Gun or you know, trying to jump into the Marvel Cinematic Universe or you know, on a, some sort of drama series, I think it's always helpful if they say, you know, like, previously on Stranger Things or... Previously on Grey's Anatomy, you know, they'll have something like that and they'll have a quick little recap before jumping into, into the next episode. And that's kind of what we're going to do this morning. We're going to do a quick recap in a sermon that we're going to cover a book to, to kind of recap us, catch us up to speed on where we're going, 2 Samuel chapter 8 next, next week. So to start the text, I think there's a there's a poem, there's a song in Samuel that really captures the main themes of the whole story, Samuel. And Samuel was originally, it's one big story. We, we've broken up into our English Bibles, First and Second Samuel, and that was just divided for scroll length. But it's just one story called Samuel. And I think a key verse is First Samuel chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. So if you have your Bible, let me invite you to open there with me. First Samuel chapter 2. We're going to look at a prayer from a woman named Hannah. She writes this. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart exalts in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. My mouth derides my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. There is none holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Talk no more so, <laughs> talk no more so very proudly. Let not arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is a God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. The bows of the mighty are broken, but the feeble bind on strength. 
Those who are full have hired themselves out for bread, but those who are hungry have ceased to hunger. The barren have borne seven, but she who has many children is forlorn. The Lord kills and brings to life. He brings down to Sheol and raises up. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's and on them he has set the world. He will guard the feet of his faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. For not by might shall a man prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. So Hannah's prayer, Hannah's song here sets the, sets the table, introduce the main themes of, of the whole book. We see humility and pride, independence and dependence, rebellion and obedience, the Lord bringing low and raising up, and we see the promise of a king. And like the, the helpful title, Pride and Prejudice, right, it clearly captures that the main themes of the 1813 novel and later the 2005 film starring Keira Knightley. You could think of Samuel not as a story titled Pride and Prejudice, but Pride and Promises. That's what Samuel is about, Pride and Promises. See, the pride of the people, the pride of the kings, and yet promises given to Hannah, promises given to the people of Israel, promises given to David. So the story of Samuel opens with a woman named Hannah. She's unable to conceive. And in her culture, this would have been very shameful. But she prays to the Lord, and, and year after year, she goes up to make sacrifices at Shiloh to the Lord. And one day, Hannah gets up early, cries out to the Lord, and she says this, 1 Samuel 1. 11, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your servant and remember me and not forget your servant, but will give to your servant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall be on his head. This is first promise. And God responds by giving Hannah a son, a son named Samuel. And Samuel serves as kind of this in-between between the period of the judges, he's the last judge, and the prophets and the kings. He's, he's in between, he's this go-between guy between the period of the judges and the Israel's first kings. And Hannah praises God in this prayer after she's given birth to Samuel. She praises God. Samuel's come, the Lord answers her prayers and she praises God. There is none holy like the Lord. There is none beside you. There is no rock like our God. Don't boast so proudly. Let arrogant words come out of your mouth for the Lord is a God of knowledge and actions are weighed by him. The bows of the warriors are broken, but the feeble are clothed with strength. The feeble, those who lack physical strength will find strength in the Lord. Those who are prone to stumble will be raised up, will find strength in God. While the warriors, the mighty, those guys will be broken. Hannah proclaims the Lord makes rich and poor. He brings low and he exalts. He humbles and he raises up. This is what the Lord does. The Lord humbles the proud, but exalts the humble. Pride, we'll see, leads to destruction and ruin. I mean, in all of the storyline of the Bible, but in Samuel, and especially in the life of Saul. I had a professor, uh, my counseling professor in seminary, he says, said this line like this, it's, it stuck with me. The only thing worse than being a murderer is being proud that you aren't one. The only thing worse than being a racist is being proud that you aren't one. Pride leads to great self-righteousness and bitterness because it claims, well, I could never do that. 
I could never wrong someone like that. I could never do that evil. And the grace of God not only restrains us, it empowers, to, it empowers us to do good and to change and, and humbles us. It's pride. God is glorified when his people live humbly to seek to humble themselves and forsake their pride and live in dependence upon him. Look at verse 10. 1 Samuel chapter 2. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. At this point, we're not told that there's going to be a king, but it paints a story for there will be a king and the Lord's going to empower him and, and strengthen him. Right? And, and the storyline of the scriptures after Israel is freed from slavery in Egypt, there's this guy named Moses, and he leads the people of Israel to the land promised to the father of the faith, Abraham, this promised land. He tells Abraham, I'm going to bless you, and you're going to be a blessing, and through you, all the nations will be blessed. And I promise to give this land to you. And after Abraham, he has a son named Isaac. Isaac has a son named Jacob. Jacob, who's later named to Israel, he has 12 sons. The 12 tribes of Israel come from this guy. So Moses frees the people of Israel from slavery, and they make a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, essentially saying God's going to bless the people, give them the land. Things are going to go well for them if they follow him, love him, and obey him. <laughs> and yet the people don't do this. They don't drive out the people. They don't love the Lord their God with all their heart. They worship other idols. They go after foreign gods. They, they commit all kinds of evil, breaking the covenant with the Lord. And while Israel was supposed to be faithful to God, they continue to rebel against God. And we enter into this period of the Judges, which is a really dark book. <laughs> we, just, we studied this book a couple years ago. It's dark, man. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> And during this time of, of Judges, what would usually happen, there's this typical cycle of the people of God rebel against God, and a, a neighboring nation would come and oppress the people. And they'd, they'd finally get broken, like their pride would break. God would break them of their pride, and they'd cry out to God, Lord, save us. And the Lord would raise up a judge, a deliverer, a savior for the people. And the, the savior would save them, would drive out the enemies. And there'd be this period of peace. And then it would start again. And, it's just, and, and the whole book of Judges kind of has this downward spiral to it to eventually at the end of the book, the people of Israel look no different than the surrounding nations and the kind of grievous wickedness in the midst. So the story of Samuel is set against this backdrop. Moral corruption, judges have come and gone. They were supposed to be different from other nations because they, weren't, they didn't have a king. The Lord was to be their king. But the people wanted a king. They cry out to God for a king. And the people come to Samuel in 1 Samuel 8. <laughs> How would you like it if someone came to you and said this to you? Behold, you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. It's a key moment in the story. He said, we want to be like all the nations. Give us a king, Samuel. And Samuel warns the people. <laughs> he's angry at the people. He tells them he's going to take your daughters. He's going to take the best of your fields. He's going to take a tenth of your grain. He's going to take the best of your servants. It's not going to be a good thing. Take a tenth of your flocks. Ultimately, you're going to be as slaves. So what Samuel warns. But the people cry out. 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 and 20. The people refused to obey the voice of Samuel, and they said, no, <laughs> but there shall be a king over us that we may be like all the nations and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And then we're introduced to one of the main characters is Samuel. Second main character would be Saul. And Saul's this guy by human appearance. You'd think 
this guy's going to be a great king. Like if he was applying for the actor of Saul, he would be a great fit. He's tall, he's handsome, good looks, right? Might be a good candidate for Thor, Captain America. Seems like a great candidate. He's taller than anyone. There's no one like him among all the people. So he's anointed and proclaimed king. This guy's Saul. Initially, things go well. He defeats the Ammonites. <laughs> things are going great. People are happy. And then he acts foolishly. Chapter 13. He offers a burnt offering. He doesn't wait for Samuel. He makes this rash vow. He's not obedient in God's commands to destroy the people of Amalek. He's not humble and repentant when Saul confronts him. Another key verse in, in Samuel is 1 Samuel 15. In verse 22, it says, And Samuel said, Has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Presumption. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has rejected you from being king. We'll see that. The Lord raising up, he's bringing low. Those who are proud are those who trust in themselves, those who don't have a fear for the Lord, those who seek to follow the voice of the people instead of the voice of God or follow their own voice, they will be brought low. And then we're introduced to the third main character of Samuel, this shepherd boy named David. He's lowly. He's keeping the sheep. But God writes and tells Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature. Saul's a super tall guy. Don't look at his height. <laughs> Maybe this guy is really short because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as a man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. So the last of, of Jesse's sons, the smallest and youngest, is who God chooses to be king. And it's David. It's like the very next story. The famous battle. So you don't even have to know 1 Samuel very well, but you know David and Goliath. We know this story. Are you seen the veggie tails? With the big cucumber and the little asparagus. <laughs> and this is how David responds in faith. To Goliath. 1 Samuel 17, 37. The Lord has delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear. He will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. David says to Goliath, 1745, you come to me with sword and a spear and a javelin, but I came, I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. It's like this guy, Goliath, he's defying the name of God. Everyone in the camp of Israel seems to be okay with it. David hears about it. He's like, what is happening, guys? You hear what this guy's saying? Something has to be done about this. I'll take my little stones and my slingshot. I'm going to, no one else is going to fight him? You get this sense of like, David is so furious and enraged that the name of the Lord is, is despised like this. And this guy, David, becomes king at, these kind of stories, right? David and Goliath stories, the humble versus the proud, the lowly versus the, the mighty, the underdog stories. We love these kind of stories. They capture us. It's at the heart of some of the most powerful stories in literature or cinema. Rocky. Rocky. Thank you, Brian. Karate Kid. 
Here Comes the Boom. Eh? Modern classic? No? I love Kevin James. Okay, how about Rudy? Humility is responding in faith when others might respond in fear, but a dependent commit, like commit, committance, is that the right word? Committal? Commitment. Commitment. Thank you, guys. To seeing God glorified. And this story of, of David and Goliath is a turning point in this story. Dave, David is, is kind of, we see his upward trajectory, and this is kind of the, the point of Saul's downward trajectory in the story. From here, Saul declines. He he gets super jealous of David. Like people start to sing songs. You know, Saul's killed his thousands. David has killed his tens of thousands. And that just drives Saul crazy. He goes mad with rage. He tries to kill David numerous times, even though David's done nothing but good things for Saul. He, try, he, he tries to trick him by giving his own daughter in marriage to David, hoping that he, he'd be killed in the pursuit of it. He's more destructive and brutal towards his own nation than versus his enemies. He's driven by rage and jealousy. He, he, he does horrific things to his own people. Like Saul learns that the priest Ahimelech has helped David in the priestly city. And Saul hears about this and he kills Ahimelech's family and the whole city. This goes on a rampage. But David continues to save the people of Israel. He continues to serve he saves the city of Keilah. He rescues them from the Philistine nation. And instead of Saul rejoicing that his, <laughs> this warrior David has saved the people, he tries to kill David. He keeps going after him. And, and David even spares Saul's life numerous times. There's this moment in the story, 1 Samuel 24, 16 through 21. David had the opportunity to kill Saul and doesn't. And David confronts Saul. He says, I've been nothing, to, nothing but loyalty. Why do you keep trying to kill me? Why do you hurt me and attack me? And David's grace and kindness strikes Saul. Verse 16, he says, as soon as David had finished speaking these words, Saul wept. He says, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have dealt with me in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him go away safe? May the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now I know, behold, you shall surely be king and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me therefore by the Lord that you will not cut off my offspring after me and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this, to Saul, and Saul went home, and David and his men went up to the stronghold. See, this kindness, this humility, this grace of David illustrated here, demonstrated here. So we see in 1 Samuel that when the, the rise and fall of this king named Saul, we're seeing kind of the rise of this, this young shepherd boy who has defeated this giant Goliath. He's leading victories and saving his people. He's showing kindness to the king, even though he's trying to kill him. David spares his life again in chapter 26. It's like, that didn't really stick with Saul the last time because he keeps going after him and trying to kill him. And at the end of 1 Samuel, chapter 26, in a battle against the Philistines, Saul is killed. That concludes the storyline of first, what we would call 1 Samuel in our scriptures. And then 2 Samuel 1, even though like, how would we respond if we think there is this enemy? He's tried to kill us a couple times. How would we respond 
if he died? <laughs> if we're really honest, we'd say, yeah. Take it, Saul. That's what you get, man. The Lord repaid you. Right? We might not say that, but we're talking about our enemies. Something bad happens to them emotionally. Something happens inside, right? Woo. Yeah, Katie, you're doing it, right? Woo! Thank you, God. <laughs> no, what he, David writes a lament for Saul. It's amazing. He writes a lament of Saul and honors him. It's powerful. David is then first, he's anointed the first king of Judah, a tribe that David is from, and, and a civil war breaks out. So David was from the tribe of Judah. All the other tribes unite and are under this name Israel, and they, they appoint one of Saul's descendants, uh, a poor soul named Ish-bosheth. And there's a civil war, and, and Judah just keeps wearing down the armies of Israel, and then Ishbosheth is betrayed and assassinated in 2 Samuel 5. And then all the tribes of Israel. The civil war ends. Judah and Israel come together. It says in 2 Samuel 5, verses 1 through 5, Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought, brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron, he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem, he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. This unite, unite, I'm struggling with my words today, guys. United, unity, yeah, union. This union of Israel and Judah happened. David has united them under his leadership. It's, he has established the, the kind of capital in Jerusalem, and then he brings in the Ark of the Covenant. And there's this famous story of David dancing before the Lord. There's songs that were sung about this, right? I think it was in the 90s, 2000s, right? I will be, right? Even more undignified than this, right? It was one of those in that era. It's like hymns were old and lame and we want to, we want to create something that's <laughs> new. And anyways, sorry guys, that wasn't in my notes. I should have just stuck with the script. <laughs> David was dancing before the Lord. And then he has this idea, this thought, okay, the Ark of the Covenant, God has been in this tent. He's been in this tabernacle all of our days where we were in the wilderness. He's around with us. I'm going to build the Lord a house, house of cedar. David at this point has built a palace for himself, this house of cedar. And he says this, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. I want to build God a house, a temple. And the key passage in 2 Samuel, maybe in the whole storyline of Samuel, 2 Samuel 7, the main promise of the whole book, the pride and the promise. 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 4. But that night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, the prophet, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I've been moving about in a tent in my dwelling. In all places where I moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people of Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? 
Now, therefore, thus you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, and you should be a prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all your enemies before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones of the earth. I will appoint a place for my people Israel and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When the days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up offspring after you and shall come up from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. Talk about a beautiful surprise. David's saying, hey, God, I want to build you a temple. I want to build you a house. And God says, you want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. (laughs) It'd be like, so Stephanie and I, last night, we went to a wedding. It was just beautiful. It was at the hall at Fauntleroy in West Seattle. Beautiful venue. Great food and drink and music and dancing. And it would be like if Steph and I showed up and we're just supposed to be attending this wedding and, uh, and the bride and groom said, Daniel and Stephanie, you came to our party? You're here to support our party? We're going to throw you a party. They're like, what? <laughs> we go to a wedding and we, we are the main event? That's crazy. That's what God says to David. I'm going to build you a house. It's going to be forever. <laughs> it's not going to be a temple that can be torn down and destroyed. This, I'm going to establish a throne, a dynasty, forever kingdom. And I'm going to give you a promise that from your descendant, from your family, there is going to be a kingdom established forever, an eternal kingdom, a forever kingdom. And this is a high moment for sure in the life of David. Fortunately, we'll, we'll see next couple months. David, yeah, Stephanie goes, yeah. <laughs> Ultimately, unfortunately, it's after kind of middle... Second Samuel, David's life, the downward trajectory goes into the kings. But that's, that's a quick recap. First Samuel, all the way through Second Samuel, seven. You guys feel caught up? I tried to hit the main ones, the main points, key verses. You guys feel caught up? So in light of this, this story, I don't... I don't just want to go, okay, that's, that's the recap. Come back next week for a sermon. <laughs> I'd like to encourage you now if I can. Is that okay? In light of the story of Samuel, the trajectory of David and Saul, I, I think the, the stories of Saul and David, they can be like character studies for us. I like the way Tim Mackey words it of David and Saul. He said, in Saul, we see a warning. It's crucial that we reflect on our own character flaws and how they harm us and other people. And with God's help, we need to humble ourselves and deal with our dark side so that Saul's story doesn't become ours. It's it's crucial to reflect on our own character flaws and and learn how they harm us and others. 
David, on the other hand, is presented as an example of patience and trust in God's timing in our lives. He's running in the wilderness. He's chased by Saul. <laughs> he's coming after him to kill him. And yet Saul respo- David responds with good instead of evil. And that's not how David doesn't think, God, you've just abandoned me. How could you do this to me? David's story encourages us to put our trust in God despite human evil. And the fact that God is working out his purposes to oppose the proud and exalt the humble. Pride and humility, right? Pride and promises. God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. I don't, I don't, I don't feel like I could ever out-preach humility. Ed Welch says in, in Caring for One Another, humility acknowledges our many sins and limitations and responds with, I need Jesus and I need other people. I struggle with that second part. Humility. <laughs> other people can't see my sins and limitations. They'll think I'm weak. If you're limited, you're weak. I need Jesus, I need other people. He writes, it's an attractive package that includes trust in God's control, confidence in the Lord's forgiveness and love, and an openness that comes not from having to be someone, but from resting in Jesus. It turns out that the simple acknowledgement of our neediness and weakness opens a door to the grace of God where we find confidence, peace, security, wisdom, strength, and freedom in him. How do we grow in humility? We acknowledge our need, our weakness, our limitations. I need Jesus. I need to trust Jesus. I need to trust in Jesus' forgiveness. I need to trust that what he says about me is true, that I don't need to be someone. When I don't feel like I need to be someone, I can be honest about my sins and my shortcomings and my struggles. I can be open and authentic with other people because they realize and discover, hey, Daniel's just like me. What happens when I pretend like I have everything together? Crushes the church. Because you feel like, oh, Daniel has it all together. Why can't I do that? I must be super broken. Wow. (laughs) Goodness. We fool ourselves. Samuel is an invitation for us to examine our own pride, the destruction and humiliation that it brings. It's an invitation to grow in humility and ask God in prayer that we would descend deeper into humility. Forsake self-centeredness and pride. Forsake self-righteousness, self-sufficiency, independence, personal autonomy, all the things that, <laughs> that we can so naturally just lean towards and all the things that music and story can reinforce in our lives. We have what it takes. You don't need anyone else. Be who you are. Forget what they say about you. No right, no wrong. I'm free. No rules for me, right? You guys know the song. Maybe you don't. Let it go. This is what she sings. The first time I came across a a quote from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity on Humility, it it struck me. I I love the way he describes it. He says, don't imagine that if if you were to meet a really humble person, that he will be what most people call humble. He will not be a kind of greasy, smarmy person who's always telling you, of course, that he's a nobody. Like, oh, I wish I could, I wish I could be as good as this person, right? 
Probably all you would think about him is that he seemed a cheerful, intelligent chap who really took an interest in what you said to him. If you do dislike him, it will, because, it will be because you feel a little envious of anyone who thinks to enjoy life so easily. He will not be thinking about humility. He will not be thinking about himself at all. I think it was Tim Keller, kind of influenced by this line of thinking. He wrote this awesome little book called The Freedom of Self-Forgetfulness. If you haven't read it, you can read it about an hour. It's a great little book. Keller writes, up until the 20th century, traditional cultures, and this is still true of most cultures in the world, always believed that to have too high a view of yourself was the root cause of all the evil in the world. Our belief today, and it's deeply rooted in everything, is that people misbehave for a lack of self-esteem and because they have too low a view of themselves. Our problems come not because we have a too high a view of ourselves, our need to embrace the self, our self-actualization, self-realization, cultural narrative, movies, and art, believe in yourself, break free from bondage of society norms, be who you really are. He says, the essence of gospel humility is not thinking more of myself or less of myself. It's thinking of myself less. True gospel humility means I stop connecting every experience, every conversation with myself. In fact, I stop thinking about myself. The freedom of self-forgetfulness, the blessed rest that only self-forgetfulness brings. A true gospel person is not self-hating or self-loving, but gospel humble. A person who's self-forgetful, whose ego is just like his or her toes. It just works. It doesn't draw attention to itself. Toes that just work. <laughs> I wear socks a lot because my toes are gross, right? But just work. You don't, I don't often think about my toes. Unless I'm wearing sandals. But I don't often think about my toes. They're just there. So the ego is. Not always drawing attention to ourself. We can forget ourselves. So we see in Saul and David, these two examples, two character studies, uh, a warning and I think an encouragement. The story of Samuel, I think, is it's virtual, virtue forming in this way. It forms this virtue of cultivates humility and pride. But Samuel, I think, is also, it's also the story is about showing us the great need that we have for a good and wise king the great need that we have for King Jesus, the, the promised king to David who will establish a forever kingdom, who will sit on an eternal throne. One of the ways that we can grow in humility is by considering and being captured by the particular glory of Jesus Christ in the gospel. Jesus, this king, king of kings, lord of lords, only person described like this, stepped down to serve you. He pursued and loved sinners. He gave up praise to be scorned. He gave up worship for condemnation. You're humbled when someone does something for you that you could never pay back. When a friend pays you a debt that you could never pay yourself, when an Amazon executive writes you a check that it would take years to repay, you could probably never pay back, really the only response that you can give there is thank you. It's humbling. If you, if you came back from a trip and your friend was staying at your house and he said, oh, oh hey, Daniel, when you were gone, you had a, a good-to-go toll. You went through the tunnel and you were charged $3.58, so I just paid that for you. You say, well, sweet. Thanks, man. Appreciate that. That's about, what it would, that's about the emotional response, right? I would probably crawl to his knees and say, thank you. How, how could I ever repay you for this? I wouldn't sing songs of worship to this friend because of how sacrificial he was towards me. You think about the debt that we owe to God and the debt that Jesus paid for us. It's not just, cool, bro. Thanks, man. I'll go about live my life now. When you see what Jesus 
has done for you. It, it humbles you. It, it cultivates something. It, it does something. The, the all-creator God of the universe loved you and gave his life for you? That you are so flawed and so sinful that this is, this is what Jesus had to do? Yet he wanted to for the joy that was set before him? He endured the shame? He, he actually wants you to be in relationship with you, to follow after him, to be transformed by him? This is like we sing those songs. How can I thank you? Thank you, Lord. You give me grace I cannot afford. <laughs> thank you, Jesus, for the blood applied. Thank you, Jesus, that has washed me white. Glory to his name. That's the cry of humility there. <laughs> Forget me, man. Glory to Jesus. It's all because of his grace. And may we continue to church live with that kind of a heart. Jesus brings low and he exalts. God gives grace to the humble, but opposes the proud. So may we humble ourselves before the Lord and give our lives to follow Jesus and learn to live in light of the grace that he has bestowed upon us. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this, this story of, of the scriptures and the story that we see in Samuel. We see the danger of pride, the trajectory of pride. We also see the, the triumph of your promise. And God's promise to David has come into fruition. It was fulfilled in the coming of Jesus. And he set up this e- eternal throne and he's ruling and reigning and we're waiting for this rest from all of our enemies that, that he promises. Be a perfect peace and rest in Jesus. We wait for that kingdom to be fully and finally realized. We pray in the meantime, Father, that, that your kingdom come, Jesus, that your will be done here on earth as it is in heaven. And may your life, the life, the life in which Jesus rules and reigns, the life in the kingdom, would, would that be true in our lives? Would there be forgiveness over bitterness, gentleness over harshness, love over indifference, service over being served, dependence over self-sufficiency, sacrifice over self-centeredness, generosity over greed, love over lust. Thank you for this beautiful story of your grace and promise, God, to David, that in spite of all of our human failures and the failures for guys like Saul and David, that you, you were always seeking the good of your people. You were always faithful and gracious with your people. And it prepares us, it points us to Jesus, who is always seeking our good. He's always seeking our flourishing. He's not using others for personal gain. He's loving us at the cost of his own life. So, Father, would that very heart be true of us? And may we grow in it by your grace as you call us to yourself. We love you so much. In your name we pray. Amen.